Hello and welcome to Series 6 of the Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries. We hope this podcast can bless you in your day-to-day life as you listen to a range of testimonies about God's faithfulness within the lives of so many. The views expressed in this podcast don't necessarily reflect that of Preset Ministries UK. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, it's a real pleasure for me today uh, to be welcoming Campbell Green to the Bible and Me podcast. Campbell, as you will detect in a minute, uh, is from Northern Ireland. He grew up and was educated in Belfast, studied biology at Ulster University in the early to mid-1970s. Uh, on leaving university, he was employed for a full career as a biomedical scientist, rising through the ranks of his pr- profession to become head biomedical scientist of the Cellular and Molecular Pathological Department, I'll tell you what, that was a mouthful, in the Antrim Area uh, Hospital. He retired in 2011. Uh, he is also has been an AIDS awareness lecturer and a university lecturer in his chosen field. Uh, Campbell is married to May, with whom they have two grown-up sons, Ken and Tom, and also a daughter, Heather, who's currently living and working in Canada. Uh, Campbell is extremely involved with his local church. Uh, he loves eating barbecues, painting and walking. And he also loves the Lord. So, Campbell, welcome to the programme. Welcome. Um, now, Campbell, how did you become a follower of the Lord? Well, that, that's a bit of a long story. Um, I was brought up in a home where my mum and dad went to church and called themselves Christians who were evangelical believers. Um, I was sent to school, Sunday school and church from as far back as I can remember. Um, there's not a time that I didn't believe in a God, that there was a God. But it never had really any application to myself. I never really seen a need to believe or, or to have a personal faith. And I suppose I grew up, went through school, teenage life, and I'd left school and actually started um full-time for education and uh, over a couple of months over a period of a couple of months God had been speaking to me through individuals through different people and circumstances and uh, I was at home it was a Monday afternoon it was the 15th of March uh, 1971 and I remember it because St Patrick's Day was at Wednesday and I was going to watch the Schools Cup rugby final in Ravenhill which is now the Kingspan Stadium and uh, I, I was playing a record, George Beverly Shea, actually it was in the, the 99 about the lost sheep. And all my family, with the exception of me, were believers. And just as I listened to that, I realised that I need to make a decision here. Because I was starting up, starting off in, in adult life as you were, going into education, going to different places. And I thought... It's either going to be a follower of God or I'm not going to be. It's going to have to make this decision one way or the other. And so that was the start of it. I suppose the 15th of of March 1971, when I was 18 years old, um, was the time that I, that God called me to follow him, if you put it that way. Mm. And did you, was there a change once you sort of made that decision at all? There wasn't, to be quite honest, a big change because... I mean, I grew up in a church. I went to youth fellowship and church activities. Yeah. And 
people used to ask me, well, well, are you a Christian? And I used to tell them, yeah, just to get them off my back. You know, I used to tell people yeah. I was, but it, I really didn't have any thought about it. So mm. there wasn't a, a big change. No, yeah. There wasn't a, a dramatic light hitting me or road to Damascus sudden change in activity because I was basically a goody-goody anyway. Yeah. So no, it wasn't a big. Now you grew up in Belfast uh, right at the start and throughout the Troubles yeah. in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, for the benefit of the listeners, uh, give us an idea of what this was like at its height, as it, at its worst, because I guess for the rest of us that may have been growing up in England and you know wherever that may be, um, Belfast, Northern Ireland was a very different place when this was going on. So give sort of characterise the scene if you can. Yep. Okay. Um, the troubles, as it's as it's been called nowadays, the heart of the start of the the violence, really began in my last year at grammar school, uh, and it was a bit of political unrest. There were justification justification for what was going on. There was. Um, certain people who didn't were being victimized and there was a right to be fought for but eventually it was uh, taken over by violent organizations such as well we know what they are and so as i grew up as a as a, a late teenager the violence really took hold um, belfast then became a dead city I grew up in North Belfast, which was one of the worst areas in terms of violence. I lived in what became known as Murder Mile because there was that many killings took part or took place on the road that I lived off. Mm. Um, once darkness came, everything stopped. There were no buses. There were no activities. There was no buildings open at night. There were no cinemas. There were absolutely nothing at night time. And so for late teens and early 20s, that's all you knew. You, you existed um, at a world where violence was a routine. I, I was going with May, who's now my wife, and she lived about three quarters of a mile away along this road where I lived. And I started off walking home at night and you walked in the shadows because there was no cars, there was no one about and you walked making sure you weren't being visible. If you had heard gunfire, you simply took to your heels and ran because you had no idea where it was coming from. I got stopped twice um, walking home and people thinking it was funny that they were going to kill you, you know, shoot you. It was, a, it was a bit of entertainment. One was serious and the fact that uh, he thought that my wife's family were uh, telling the police about his activities and he did actually end up, um, well, it's a super grass. He ended up with a new identity somewhere else. Um, and so I, after a while, I wasn't allowed to walk home. I had to get a lift home. So I had to phone my dad up and he would come and pick me up and I'd go home. And then eventually I bought a motorbike and made myself, made my own way home. And I remember one night coming back from Mays and it was the only one in the road, totally deserted. And I was coming along on my bike and as I, I looked behind and I seen this car pulling out from a side street behind me. And as I looked at it, it came down behind me. And so I came to where I lived 
and uh, I didn't indicate where it was turning on off. I just turned on the end of the street, and next thing the car's coming in behind me. And okay, and then I got to the, the house that I lived, and I pulled up sharply in front of the house and jumped off the bike, only to have this car pull out in front of me, and four men jump out. Only it was four policemen. <laughs> They were looking for a gunman on a motorcycle, so and they thought they you. followed me, thinking I was a gunman. That was that was routine. My dad was called George George Green, uh, and at that time, part of the police force that were called the Beast Specials, and they had a, an old an old uh, boys association, and the the guy who headed it up had the same name as my dad. My dad wasn't the person that was in it. And we used to have TV crews, German TV companies, turn up at the door wanting to interview George Green. They just looked it up in the phone book. And so that was everyday life. You became, you accepted it. That was just what, what was norm. You just got on with it. I don't think any, very few people living in Belfast would not have been affected in some way by the violence that went on between um, the early 70s and, well, even on to the 90s. And police on the streets? Um, army on the streets? Police and army on the streets. Every Sunday afternoon, I sat in the house and listened to gun battle where the, the army were taking on um, uh, IRA gunfighters in, in, in the Ardine area of Belfast. It was routine every Sunday. Really? sat and listened to the... Really? The gun battle going on in the afternoon. Goodness me. And you'd lay in bed and heard the bombs going off. When I was younger, we used to run to the bomb sites. We used to see if we'd get there first. And then they started you, being you more You ran casually. to the bomb sites? Oh, I, we, used to, we used to run to see where the bomb was, you know, to see what had happened. But those were the days before they would just blow up buildings and then became more, more sinister. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Did you lose people? Did you lose people that you knew in the trouble? Yeah, I mean, I knew people, people who went to school with, were shot dead, happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, other ones that went to church with, went to youth fellowship, went to the BB camp with, you know, friends. BB being? Boys Brigade. Boys Brigade, uh, yeah. An organisation. Yep. The ones you grew up with, they were murdered, killed, blown up. You know, I'm sure there'd be 20 plus people that I would have known personally or known family members. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, how did you how did you cope? I mean, you you said you you sort of um, made a conscious decision to follow the Lord aged 18. This was going on while you are, if you like, a, a new Christian. I mean, how how did you cope with all of this, and how did your faith? Um, sustain you at all? Did it sustain you uh, during this time? Well, being part of that community, I knew that the, the troubles itself had nothing to do with the religion. You know, it's typified and it's pictured by those that are looking for a quick uh, view on the, on the troubles, saying it's Catholics and Protestants, it's, it's a religious war. It never was a religious war. Um, a lot of it was pure gangsterism. People wanted to to be better off and, and to use this as an aim of of violence and stealing and getting what they wanted. So um, 
had the advantage of while I lived in Belfast, I was at college and university. I was at university, which was about 60 miles north of Belfast. And it was like a totally different world. You went out at night and you thumbed a lift and you never thought of anything about it. You never thought of any violence. It was a totally different world. Mm. So the violence that existed only existed in certain parts of Belfast. You know, it was localised. just helped to be that I lived there for a couple of days a week and then lived in what was normality. I mixed with all people, all religions. Um, I became part of the university, CU. I, I led Bible studies at the university and, you know, it was just... It was just the world that you lived in, you know. You, you came back and a, a, a different a different mindset, you know. You came back and you just realised, you know, you have to keep your head down for the next couple of days before you get back out into normality yeah, again. Yeah, goodness so. me, goodness me. Um, yeah, I mean, for those of you that are listening... Um, I, it's difficult to imagine, really, uh, what that must have been like. Um, and, and obviously the violence went on and on for, for a long time. It wasn't just a, a six months or a year. I mean, we're talking yeah. years this went on, on and off in yeah. different phases and stages. And obviously, you know, I've got an army background. My brother served over here. And, uh, yeah, it must have been very tough, very difficult. But I suppose, you know, you, you get used to it to some extent. I mean, did you ever feel as though you were going to leave Northern Ireland? Did, did that ever come across your mind? Say, you know what, we're just going to leave this place and go and live somewhere that's a bit safer and a bit less violent, or not? Believe it or not, no. When I got married, my wife wanted... We went to Vancouver for honeymoon. And the idea was that I would like to go and live... She thought I would go and live in Canada, you know, and emigrate to there. I'd never any real desire to leave. I'm too much of a home person. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't want to leave family. I thought it was too big a ranch. Now that I'm older, now that it's still this sort of sense of what's happening in the community. You know, I, I'd more consider leaving now than I did when I was 18. <laughs> uh, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, more and you know, why would I want family growing up? You know, if this is going to go on for another 20, 30 years, what's the point of staying here? I mean, yeah. I, uh, more so now than I was when I was. I never thought of leaving home. Yeah, interesting. Now, now after graduating from uh, the University of Ulster, you became a biomedical scientist. Yep. Um, so for those of us who haven't got a clue what a biomedical scientist does, tell us a little bit about that work. Well, I, I don't know what a biomedical scientist does. Um, there are a number of different um, disciplines, actually, in biomedical sciences. The particular discipline that I worked in was in cytopathology or pathology, study of disease, essentially at the cellular level. So most of what I was involved was in the diagnosis of cancer, um, either from samples that were coughed up, scraped off, sped up or taken off with a needle uh, and examined to see if there's any uh, cancers or precancer cells in it. So the whole of my career was involved in that sort of discipline. Towards the end of it, it became much more molecular. And they were looking at um, particular viruses. You know, they got it down to that. You were looking for viruses in the tumour. It sort of got past my level of understanding when I, when I got to the point of retiring because it was a totally 
it was unheard of when I was at university. It was a new scheme. Mm. And so, um, so you could tell, looking at cells, looking at what you had scraped off, whatever you just said there, yeah. you could identify whether something was cancerous or yeah. not. Yeah. And how would you do that? Just for, the, for those non-scientists here, how, how would you actually do that? Well, the, the cells are stained using particular dyes. You know, you put it through a process. Um, you dye the, the cellulose, the, the wall of the cell, you dye the nucleus a different colour, blue, black colour. And so you can identify the different structures of an, an individual cell. So what's entailed is looking at every individual nucleus of, of the sample that you're looking at. And there's certain characteristics that you would see in the nucleus that would be abnormal. And so depending on the degree of abnormality, depended on the type of uh, precancerous or cancerous cell you were looking at. So you could type it that way. Really? Um, but it's all done visually. Um, mm. Now, they've, they've attempted to make um, computers do it, but human recognition can't be battered in terms of recognizing the, the subtle changes that sometimes occur within a nucleus of a cell, you know, that determines why it's normal or abnormal. Really, and you, and so, and then obviously you'd say, well, oh, we've got one here, and then you'd go back to the doctors or whoever and say, well, actually this person is likely to have cancer yeah. or it's whatever. Yeah. He, well, for the positive ones, then you would have given it to the pathologist, the consultant, and they would report it and call them back and um, maybe had biopsies taken of it. Um, mm -hmm. Other ones you just reported yourself as being negative, you send them out. So. Mm. Um, were you yeah. involved at all in any of the uh, cures for cancer or looking at ways in which you could stop this? No, we were purely diagnostic. Um, most of the people that are involved in cure are academic and you know, are charity work. So um, universities would be involved in the the uh, the delivery of of new treatment where we were simply involved in the diagnostic work of it. Mm. So we, there were a lot of screening programs that would have taken part in the community, breast screening program we'd have been yeah. involved in, yeah. cervical screening program we'd been involved in. Mm -hmm. So it's making that initial diagnostic mm. um, decision on, on the sample. Um, and so the earlier you tend to get it, the more treatable the, the tumor or the cancer would be, or the yeah. pre-cancer would be. Yeah. Yeah, uh, interesting. Very. Did did the troubles uh, affect or impact your work at all? Um, yeah. Um, I, I worked the, the my initial job. I started in mid seventies was in the Royal Victoria Hospital, which was in the heart of West Belfast, which was in the heart of a lot of the violence and a lot of troubles. Um, Many a day you'd have walked and seen uh, army pigs as they used to drive. The vehicles, the big vehicles, army. The big, big six-wheel drive things coming around corners, drove over cars and anything. It just didn't stop. With injured soldiers in the back of it. It was just, uh, I have just walked past the door when somebody's opened fire and a police vehicle coming in. Uh, you know, I've, I was in, on call at half seven in the morning the day the first hunger strike died. And I had to go through burning barricades and uh, and rats to get into work. Um, I, you know, you were impacted again. There were a number of people that I I worked with who had connections with security forces, who ended up 
being murdered in the hospital. Um, and you knew people who were involved in it. You knew people who were... Um, Are she murdered in the hospital? Yeah. I remember once Goodness going me. home, had a guy that I knew had had certain connections looking out the back window of his car, my car, and I thought, assumed he was only checking my number plate, you know, to see if it was in any sort of police database. And uh, only about six months later did I, I get driving through the centre of Belfast and going past the cathedral, the next thing the army jeep comes flying up, they jump out with their guns and stop the car and taken out of the car, up against the wall, the car taken apart. A car with my number plate had been used in an armed robbery uh, on the border. So that's when it clicked that that's why the guy was checking my number plate out. So he knew that, you know. So somebody cloned your number plate, yeah. basically. Yeah. Really. So, yeah. That was Andrea. Hmm. Now, in the late 70s, you married May. Uh, you have three children, all mm -hmm. of whom are grown up now. Um, you cited to me uh, one of the struggles or challenges uh, that you've had in your life. Uh, and I guess a lot of people would... would um, uh, agree with this, um, that is having a prodigal son. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah. We have, well, the oldest son um, was very artistic. He went to Maidstone School of Art to study art in Kent. Took him over, sat him up in the halls and got him all set up to start art school, came home at Christmas, um, high school, great, fine, doing well, went back and shortly after that we got a letter from the university saying your son has been um, sent down from university, non-attendance, hasn't been at any courses and uh, he just dropped out of university, um, then he dropped out of uh, our life totally. He started moving about, lost contact, lost any information about where he was. So for about a year and a half, two years more, no idea me. where he was, what he was doing. We actually had sort of contacted the police um, to see if we could get a search to see if we could find out. What he had simply been doing was he'd been flitting home from home against his student mates and just laying on their cities and living in their houses, but not to any deliberate or, or just because he was a teenager and enjoyed himself, he never thought of contacting home. Mm. And uh, I remember once in and the church... No, no, mob, no mobile phones in those no days? No mobile phones at all. One of the church prayer meetings we were having and we were praying for the prodigals and on a Wednesday night, and uh, praying specifically for him, you know, a number of families have prodigal children. And uh, I was at home that Sunday. Normally I'd have been at church, but for some reason May was out. And uh, I was sitting at home, and then next thing the phone went. And there was my son on the phone. Um, I, I didn't expect it. I don't think he expected me. And he says, can I come home? And say, of course you can come home, you know. 
you know, totally out of the, out of the blue. Fancy came home. He came home with uh, about a foot square suitcase. That was all he had. Processions left with him. He came home. Um, but the old prodigal son. Um, I was just reading there at Luke. It says, you know, it says, and he said to them, "Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received." him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never give me a young goat that I might celebrate with you with my friends. And my younger son was exactly like that. He came home, he came out, he said, Why are you taking him back? Look at the heart, Daddy. Why do you want him? Why would you do that? Exactly the same as that prodigal son, exactly he was the younger and not the older. Mm. Reconciled and I, I mean, they're, they're friends and he, he keeps in contact and I know where he lives. In fact, and I have a, a granddaughter from both of my sons. Mm. But, you know, it's difficult, you know, how to, how you come to terms with a son who's wantonly, left and, and has no desire and how to deal with him when he does come mm-hmm. home and how to deal with the, those that have said you know what are you doing that for look at the pain he caused you and mm-hmm. you're just taking him home again you know mm-hmm. and it's sometimes difficult to know that God's will in those ways you know yeah, yeah. Um, one son would profess faith and the other one wouldn't at the minute you know mm-hmm. What is God's plan? Sometimes difficult to understand. Mm. I have to admit, you know, mm. where where does God's plan fit in? Yeah, but I guess keeping the lines of communication open and your house open to your kids is a great start, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Um, I well, know it's an easy thing to say. Um, well, it's like the product it gets so bad. He lost all his friends. Had finished university. They were all heading off there, and, and he had nowhere to go. It's like the prodigal. He had, it, it was eating mother pig, you know, yep. on phone home, can yep. I come home? Yeah, yeah. Um, you yep. just, what do you say, yes, you, what do you do? You don't. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you, um, you are a former head of an evangelical youth organization yep. uh, called the Campaigners. Campaigners. Uh, <clears throat> how uh, did you get involved with them and what did they do? That's a long story again. Campaigners started in London, believe it or not, in St. Mark's Parish Church in the 1940s. Here, Evan Colin Kerr, I think, was the one who started that off, started the work, seeing the need for young people to be involved. It was sort of a military base to start off with, uniformed. Um, and it was based within evangelical churches. The main aim was to get young people with the gospel to different activities like sports and badge work and other activities. So there's a, a, a program of events and awards that was uh, entailed in campaigners. I grew up, as I said, uh, all my life in what was called the Boys Brigade, again, which was a uniformed organization. And until I got married and moved to where I live now, I was always involved, uh, even as a leader, as an officer in the Boys Brigade. And so when I came to the church that had campaigners, Knowing my background, they said, well, why don't you come and help in campaigners? And so I started off totally lost because it was a totally different organisation. 
uh, I got involved in campaigners, steadying the campaigners in the local church in the French Lee. They asked would I take over the regional leadership of campaigners, um, um, which I did for uh, nine years. I was the regional chief. Still the headquarters based in London, um, based in St Albans. In fact, they actually moved out to um, it now doesn't exist, or it exists in small pockets, I think, in England, mostly up in the uh, northeast, um, and exists still in Ireland or in the north of Ireland, still mm. the only mm. place that it is. Mm. The whole idea, you know, it's based within an evangelical church, uh, and the aim is to reach young people yeah. for God. Yeah, very good, very good. Now, I know that you are very involved in your local church um, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I also know that you love, you love the Word of God. Why, why is the Word of God important to you? That's a good question. For a long, long time, I suppose you could say it wasn't that important to me. Um, I, I grew up in, as I said at the beginning, in church. From as far back as I can remember, I went to church, sometimes five times on a Sunday. Hmm. Um, I had heard more sermons than I could have hot dinners and uh, I thought I knew what the Bible said. I thought I knew exactly what was entailed in the Bible so I didn't really need to read it. I didn't need to study it because, uh, well, I knew it. I'd listened to so many people tell me about it. And it wasn't until about 15 years ago, I suppose it is now, um, Kay Arthur came to Northern Ireland uh, and held a, a weekend seminar. It was actually St. Valentine's weekend, and my wife says, Mom will go away for the weekend, St. Valentine's Day. What May didn't tell me, of course, was that the motive behind going away for the weekend for St. Valentine's was to go to the conference that Kay Arthur was at. And so I said, yeah, I'll go along to it. And as I sat uh, that Saturday, I think it was, afternoon, and I listened to her go through the, the Bible, I realized I really do not know anything about the Bible. When I listened to how she went through from Old Testament, New Testament, back and forward and explained it, I thought, hmm. And she was going about the room asking people questions, and I sort of slid down in my seat a bit more so that she wouldn't ask me a question, because I really... I knew nothing about what the Bible was actually saying. And I thought I knew it all. I had never met anyone who could explain it that way. And so I said, if I'm going to study it, my, I said, I'm going to do it properly, you know. And so um, I went out and bought a preset Bible that afternoon at the, at, at the end of the, the talk and started actually studying precept. So that's only about 15 years ago. And I suppose I've learned more in 15 years studying using preset material than I did for the 45-odd years before that. Really? Um, it just became, yeah, as you say, real. You know, not just the knowledge. It wasn't just that you knew the stories. In fact, when I started studying precept, I realized that some of the stories that I had been taught and I had taught were totally incorrect. You know, I only, because somebody had told me, and I said, well, that must be accepted. And only when you went back and actually looked at the passage, well, that's not really what that was about. And so I probably learnt more and become more to me over the last 15 years 
um, simply because like most men here in this part of the world who are brought up in the church, we think we know it. We don't need to learn anything else. We have been taught and told and listened to so many sermons. We have it all sorted. Um, and it just it wasn't true. So that's how I got involved and I've continued doing it for well, 15 odd years. Now, for those who are listening to this podcast who, who may have heard about Precept but have not have actually done any of the studies, what what is it about the studies themselves that you fa- you have found so helpful? What is it about the the, the precept, the methodology, the, the way? What is it that, that's, that's been so helpful to you? Well, I jumped that in the deep end, of course, which is the precept upon precept studies, which is, um, you know, about an hour study every day for five days. Um, and it's the idea of actually reading and reading and reading it again, instead of just quickly going over it and having the passage done, you read the passage and then you went back and you looked at what's this passage, who's it talking to, what's it about, when was it, you know, and going through those questions you ask yourself and then you begin to look at the passage and see it in a a light that you didn't normally see. And then as you did that, then God obviously speaks to you through his word as well. And then you begin to realise, you know, some of the truths that you knew in your head but then it becomes, you know, it became uh, personal, personal, mm. if you want to put it that way. It, mm. became, it became living, you know, when you can actually sit at your Bible and read a passage and be emotionally moved, physically moved, you know, because you've read something, the truth about what God has done for you. And it's not just an exercise in let's get this passage read and let's answer this question. But it then becomes, what is this? What is God saying to me as I read this and as I study this? Um, it can be at times you get in the habit of just answering the questions, but you know, studying God's word, well, God will fulfill His purpose in His life because it is living and it is active and it is there to teach us and correct us. And, and so you started doing this for yourself, but you then got to a position where you were then leading others, didn't you? Yeah, I started. Uh, in a class and then after a few years did training and then became leader and led a few groups and continued to lead a few groups. So here's my question uh, how easy is it, is it to get guys studying the Bible? Uh, and when I say study the Bible I mean you know regularly in the Word of God study, not just reading it but actually digging into it how difficult is that and I'm sort of I, I sort of know what you're going to say there and if it is difficult, why is it difficult to get guys to do this? It's not easy. Um, I lead two men's groups. Um, the biggest one would have maybe ten on it. Um, men are busy. Men don't see the necessity to do as I said before. We know it because we have been in the church and a lot of us and we have been listen to all these sermons and we don't need to know anymore. We assume that we have the knowledge that we don't have. We um, have no desire to study because no one else is doing it. 
you know, why would we do it? And I mean, I came into my wife, and a lot of men have done it because their wives have, have set the example, you know, which is wrong in itself, you know, but men are just reluctant. If, if, if food is involved in it, then they'll be more, more amenable to come along and take part in it. Um, but once, generally once they get involved in it, then they do see the benefits of it, then they do commit themselves to it. I mean, the ones that I would lead now, I mean, these guys have been committed now for a number of years to study um, and see the benefit of it and would be uh, advocates for it, you know, outside amongst other men, tell them, why did you do that? Yeah, and you've got a wide range of people that come, haven't you? I mean, in terms of their backgrounds and professions and... And yeah. uh, haven't you? I mean, I know you've shared in the past that you're going in there. I don't know. You've got a policeman or judges or or whoever, and you know, bright guys. Yeah, I mean, most of them know more than I know. Most of them are more, more educated than I would ever think to be in terms of the Bible. But yeah, we have we have a wide range of people, um, from you know high ranking police, ex police to you know. All types of people, essentially, you know, studying God's word mm. and having the desire to do it as well, and, mm. uh, and meeting, you know. Mm. How would you so living here in Northern Ireland um, spiritually? How would you, how would you characterize um, Northern Ireland spiritually at the moment? Um, declining, if not near dead, spiritually. A lot of churches about the place, a lot of them are in decline, closing down, elderly. Um, you, know, you talk about Northern Ireland being the last bastion of, of evangelical church. Well, if it is, it's in a bad way. I mean, you only have to look at society here to, to realise, you know, if we were the, the bastion of the truth, why do we see what's going on um, in the community? Um, and the town that I live here, it's estimated that less than three percent of the population would go to a church on a Sunday. Um, not probably good, but it's still ninety-seven percent of the people don't have any time for God, or maybe have a, a, a niggling in their head but no desire to meet. Mm. Um, and so, it's a, it's a. It's a warfare that we're in. I mean, it's it's a battle that you're called to be involved in. I mean, that's we're called to, to run the race and finish the course, and not to start and give up halfway. So yeah. it might be hard, but we're still called to continue on and finish. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, it it has an appearance that maybe. It has an appearance of religiosity that isn't based in, in biblical truth, to put it that way. Yeah. They're good churches, don't get me wrong. I mean, the church is growing, but it's, uh, a lot of them are in the, a lot of the established churches are in decline. Mm. Mm. Elderly congregations, and yeah. slowly dwindling out and closing down. Like, you know, you go into the centre of Belfast, and the, the big churches are now the nightclubs, the bars, you know, the Witherspoons, the... Uh, uh, junk shops or whatever else uh, just closed and taken over mm, so sad so sad now um do you have a favorite bible book or character 
I mean, there's obviously multiple people that you could uh, think of in the Bible, but probably Peter is the one that you think of most because he's the one that appears to be the one who always jumps in, you know, and, and sort of says things and then thinks afterwards and does actions that, you know, well, I shouldn't have done that. You know, the sort of guy that, you know, he says about, you know, the good that I want to do, that I don't do it, and what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And so you could sort of have that that affinity with him, you know, this is sort of, mm. you know, he sometimes gets a bad press, but he, mm. you know... He, I think that was Paul, actually, that said that. Yeah, Paul. Paul. What did yeah. I say, Peter? Yeah. Um, But you get that idea, you know, that, um, yeah, you know, here's a, a, you know, someone that still follows even after all yeah. his failures. Yeah, yeah. Um, but still follow on. I suppose mm. that's... <laughs> That's wise. You can sort of have that empathy with them and think, mm. well, okay, if he can do it. If he can do it. Yeah. He who lived with Jesus for three years, yeah. who says, I'm not going to deny you, I'll, you know, and then moments later, yeah, I know. Yeah. I've said this before on the podcast, I think, but uh, what incredible grace for Jesus to reinstate Peter after death and resurrection to go back to Peter you know he could have gone to Peter and said you denied me at that critical point you're out of here mm. yeah. and yet he you know he graciously restores him absolutely amazing what about a favourite Bible verse do you have a verse that you uh, would have a verse that probably it goes in a number of verses it's in um, Ephesians just look it up now you want to find yeah. it yeah. Ephesians and it's in, in a and, a, and a, a, a number of verses that talk to us about the, the nature of God and I suppose you know and it says that so that according to the rich of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power and his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then this verse is one that spoke to me years ago. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And that first able to do more long time well 20 30 years ago there was there were questions going on in my head about where i should be involved in terms of you know uh, commitment to a local church and there were a lot of people that were my friends were were moving on and and going to other places that were more attractive and and that first came to me one day and it says no i'm going to even even more than you can imagine you've got these dreams about what you'd like to do and so I stuck to where I was in the church that I belonged to. And uh, it was about, it would have been 30 years afterwards, I was sitting in Woodlands Baptist Church in Chattanooga, listening to a guy, it wasn't the pastor, because there were no pastors there, preaching a sermon about what, what what wall do you put your ladder up against? That was the title of a sermon. <laughs> and it's only then... But that that first came back and I said, that's it. You know, I had this vision, you know, if you're able to do big churches, big events, you know, do this big. 
you wouldn't have thought you'd have been giving up your time to come and study God's word and giving up a week to go to America to learn more about my word. And that's what, you know, I'd never imagined I would do that 30 years ago. I'd never crossed my mind that I would even think of doing that. And that there it says, he's able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think according to the power at work within us. It was Christ's work within us. Who gives us desire to study his word? Mm. Not our own. So we don't have, particularly, you know, you know, that was an answer to that. When I sat there and realized, you know, this is me, this is this guy. He's, he's just crossed the half the world to come and spend a week uh, doing a Bible study. You know, what do you, where do you think you are now? That's far more than you ever thought or imagined. Yeah. Didn't think you would be doing that no. 30 years ago. No. And that's when that's when I had me, you know, God has, mm. has taken me much more than I even thought. Mm. Um, I had my own ideas what that meant, but yeah, that's it. interesting. That's what it is. Interesting. Now, for someone listening to this who may be struggling to see the Word of God as you see it or to access it as you have accessed it, how would you encourage them? Perseverance is a, is a great thing, I suppose, to, to uh, take the time to actually to read His Word and to read it. I mean, not just to... We all get into habits, you know, we'll, we'll read, we'll say, we'll read this and so many, but it's really not taking it on board. We're reading it simply to, but to take the time just to, to sit and ask God to show you what he has to say in his word and take the time to read it and read it and read the same thing again until you see what is being said. There um, are different um, translations and sometimes they're, there are versions that help you understand what the Bible is actually saying. Um, get a version that you can understand and can appreciate and, and read it. And get somebody to help you understand it. Get somebody who knows, join a class, a Bible study class, wherever it may be. Get connected with somebody if you want to know more. Attend the church that teaches God's Word. Yeah, very good, um, very good. Very good. For those of you that are listening that may, may be inspired to do that, please contact Precept. Um, we have a wide range of resources, training, and um, really accessible studies to help you um, dig out the truth for yourself. There's nothing like doing it for yourself, is there? You know, you said you, you we can listen to sermons all, all day long, but actually until you do it yourself, uh, it's like anything, you know, you're going to be a, a swimmer or a cook or a you know, choose a profession. You've, you've got to do it yourself to learn it. And yeah. so that's what we're seeking to do uh, as a ministry. Um, Campbell, I want to thank you for coming on the program today. Um, clearly, you've had some very interesting experiences in your life um, living here. Uh, there's moderate peace here at the moment in Northern Ireland. Moderate peace. Moderate. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's vastly different from what it was when I was growing up as a teenager, my teenage children have no understanding what it was like or what it would have been like. You know, it's a different different society. I'm not saying that, you know, the underlying um, 
but I know it's a different world. Yeah, different yeah. universe. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the program today. You've been listening to Series 6 of the Bible and Me podcast by Preset Ministries. If you enjoyed what you heard, we would love it if you could leave a rating or review. For more information on the inductive study method or any of our online resources or downloads, please visit www.preset.org.uk. But until next time, thank you for listening.